Um, it's actually, in many respects, it's far simpler um, to develop in Japan than it is to develop in, in a Western country. You are listening to the Property Developer Podcast, your home for tips, ideas, and inspiration to help take your developing to the next level. Now, here's your host, Justin Getty. Hello, and welcome to episode 74 of the show. Thanks for joining me. Got a great show coming up for you today. Sharing a story I'm sure you are going to enjoy. Certainly one we haven't discussed before on the show, and I think you're really going to like it. Anyway, how have you been? How are your projects going? I'm well. Still in lockdown in Melbourne. have to say I'm pretty bored of it all and looking forward to some changes. But who knows when that will be. Anyway, work continues slowly at my site. The drainage people are on site at the moment, digging trenches and installing big pipes and pits around the place, which is great to see. Check out the Property Developer Podcast Facebook page for a quick update video that I shot and you can see what's happening on site. On the sales front, we're seeing a bit of a surge of interest at the moment, which I think is due to pent-up demand and people wanting to act after some lockdown restrictions were relaxed a little, allowing private inspections to happen for real estate. Plus, the Home Builder Grant is due to expire in a few months, so that may be creating some urgency for buyers to act and take advantage of the money on offer. It's good to see some activity back in the market, and I hope it continues. On my other project, I'm assessing what to do as there is a moratorium on evictions in Victoria until March next year, so we cannot get our property vacant until the middle of next year, which has an impact on our planned timelines. It's certainly an interesting time for the property industry. Hopefully government incentives and support measures continue to be rolled out to help keep the sector viable and vibrant. Now, if you are interested in learning how to develop property, then remember we have the mentoring program that's available to help guide you through the process of becoming a developer. It's a great program that will teach you lifelong skills and help you unlock value and wealth from real estate. If you'd like to know more, then email me, justin at propertydeveloperpodcast.com. Okay, let's get on to today's guest. I can't wait to bring this to you. This is a story I'm sure you're going to love. This discussion is a reminder about the many different ways that you can become a developer, and it doesn't even need to be in your own country. So I'm speaking with Ruskin McLennan, who has spent decades doing real estate projects in Japan. Ruskin started off tackling a ski resort project, learned a few hard lessons, and then got heavily involved with land subdivision, which he is still actively doing today. There were so many questions I had for Ruskin when I was talking to him. Like, how does a guy from central New South Wales end up doing property deals in Japan? Why would you develop in Japan? How difficult is it to do developments there? Who are the buyers? And so many more questions. This is a fascinating discussion, one that I really enjoyed and I'm sure you will too. So let's get straight into it and see what Ruskin would eat until he was sick. Um, mangoes. I love, I love a fresh mango. Um, and I can eat, you know, I love all the different flavors at the different times of year. So I had to, you know, I do love a little bit of chocolate, but mango is definitely my favorite food. So I, I'd have to say mangoes. And which a particular mango breed? I love, you know, there's mangoes from all around the world. You know, they come as far from Mexico now, but um, those Queensland mangoes, when they come into season at the beginning of the summer, 
um, to me have just got the right texture and an incredible amount of sweetness that I think, you know, I just get, you know, I love the seasonality of that fruit, you know, and just the way it, it tastes different throughout the year. So it's got to be an early summer Queensland mango. Oh, well, being a Queensland, a former Queenslander myself, I can appreciate the joy of the mango and having grown up in the tropics, eating them all the time, they are a pretty special uh, fruit. Definitely. Definitely one of my favourites. All right. Well, it's good to know that you're a mango lover and we might get to whether they have mangoes in Japan because we'll get to your story shortly about how you ended up in Japan. But you got a bit of an interesting story to tell. So give us a bit of a background about how you got into property and then we'll move into your story about doing some developing and real estate in Japan. Um, I grew up with real estate. My father was um, a pharmacist and he invested in some local real estate. And so I can always remember following what he did. Um, back in the day, some developing and subdividing. I grew up on the central coast, just north of Sydney, and there were some opportunities up there. Um, so I saw my father get involved in that fledgling market back in the 70s and 80s when I grew up. Um, so I was always fascinated with it. Um, and I did a degree in, um, in land economics at the University of Western Sydney. Um, and I really enjoyed that um, the practical side of economics um, and that was a fantastic course and I made some great friends during that course who, um, who went into all different areas of real estate and I was, you know, to this day we still do business together and we still meet on a regular basis um, and some of those guys are overseas working in Dubai, some are working in residential development in Western Sydney and some are working in government. So, uh, yeah, fantastic course. I, so uh, just, just quickly, what, do you, what, what would be the main thing that you reckon you took out of a land economics course? Um, valuation. Um, obviously, the, the course focuses on valuation, um, but it also focuses on, on marketing, on accounting. Um, so it's like a very practical economics degree. Um, but really the, the valuation side of that course was really valuable to me is just, you know, sitting down and, and evaluating an investment on a very rational basis, you know, the cash flow, um, you know, NPVs, all those sorts of things. So I, that's what I really enjoyed about that course. Um, all right. So, so you graduated top of the class and left uni and then what? <laughs> I definitely didn't graduate top of the class. Um, you know, and I was, I worked for Wilson Parking for five years and that was a great, um, that was an interesting way to get into the commercial side of real estate. Um, I did a couple of years working out at Sydney Airport as well in there, in the commercial side there. Um, and then I went overseas and I lived in Prague for three years and I was doing real estate acquisitions for a big car company over there and they were sending me around the world and but mostly around Europe looking at sites to uh, to purchase or to lease um, and the car market so that was a fantastic three years of education um, so you drove a and, um, I did drive a Skoda a little bit but um, um, you know, the, it was 
in the car business, it was a very exciting time. There was a big, there's a guy who's on the BRW Rich List, a guy called Tony Denny. I worked with him for three years. Um, and he started a chain of used car dealerships in Eastern Europe and expanded that greatly and did very, very well out of it. And he was, a, he's, you know, also a mentor to me to a certain degree. So that was a fun time um, working in Eastern Europe. Um, and I was, um, I'd been, yeah, so that really led, uh, after I left Eastern Europe, I went, um, I actually, by that stage, I'd been skiing in Japan for three or four years. So I first went to Japan in 1998 um, as a keen skier and snowboarder. And there were very few people there in 1998. And I continued to ski there um, pretty much, uh, well, up until the present day, of course. Um, but going to Japan in 1998 to ski and snowboard was a little bit like going to Bali in 1972 as a surfer. Um, it, there were very few foreigners there. The snow conditions were very good. It was like a little bit like discovering a gem. You know, I certainly wasn't the first person to ski in Japan, um, but I was one of the sort of early people. So I was, um, you know, I, I've seen it grow substantially over the last 23 years. Um, as a skiing destination and a holiday destination and a tourist destination. Um, so during that time I was in Eastern Europe, I was able to, I, you know, I made my first investments in Japan um, and I bought my first block of land um, in Japan in 2004 um, for $30,000. Um, so that's how I – and I just really – not as an investment, really, just as um, because I'd been going there for four or five years just to build a house. Um, I thought that'd be a, you know, it was certainly a place I wanted to continue to ski. Um, and there was just some very early development happening in that time in, in 2004. So I, there was a couple of local guys who were building houses. So I uh, got those guys to put them some d designs together for me to build a house. Um, and that's how I got involved in the Japanese property market in 2004. And so did you build your, build the house? No, I didn't. <laughs> I what ended happened? Up, uh, well, what happened was um, I was offered a partnership in a development site. Um, in Japan? So in Japan, in Nisikoi. Um, and I could see how quickly the value of that block of land that I'd purchased in 2004 increased um, and a good friend of mine was the biggest inbound tourist operator and still is to this day into uh, into the ski resorts in Japan, a guy called Pete Murphy who runs a company called Ski Japan. So we, part, Pete and I and another investor partnered up and we purchased a site um, and just, we were going to... Sorry yeah. to interrupt. Can you just give us a bit of a flavour of what that site looked like? Size, um, sort of location. That site what you on um, doing? was about was right at the base of the ski hill, so it was classic. Um, it was ski developing one hundred and one. It was ski in, ski out property. Um, it was about fourteen hundred square meters, and at that stage in Nisiko, you um, there were no building regulations, and you could build really whatever you wanted to. Um, it was classified as forest. It was before they put any zoning together on that site. So we'd 
three investors, we bought the site. It cost us a million dollars. Um, so instead of building the house, I invested in that in that property, um, and we employed a project manager to put a, a development application in on the site. So we'd engaged architects. Um, and at that stage, I was still living in Eastern Europe. Um, so we um, bought the site, settled it, employed a project manager, and then uh, were successful in getting a DA to build a seven-story building in at the base of the ski hill in Nisiko. Um, so the apartments? Apartments, yeah, 36 apartments. Um, long story short, um, in 2000. Six, we sold that site to to consolidated property to through to Don O'Rourke um, through his company and Last we show. yeah yeah so Don um, you know we were happy with that arrangement at that stage because we um, we were struggling with finance in Japan at that stage and Don was the right guy to take over the site um, so he took over the site with the DA. And um, and completed the development, and uh, yeah, it was a very it was a great success. It settled all the the, the building was complete in September two thousand and eight, um, and it was mostly sold to the consolidated database. So um, you know the location, the design, yeah, it was it was a success. So uh, that was um, you know how I got to meet Don O'Rourke. Well, the beauty of the podcast is that we can um, go with the long stories rather than the short ones. So, can you fill in a little bit more detail about where you got caught up or what you learnt in that first development application and maybe talk to us about what it's like getting a development application in, in Japan? Um, getting a development application in Japan is actually is really straightforward. Um, But we were caught in an interesting conundrum at that stage because when we put in our development application, we put in a development application in for a seven-story building. Um, and after we'd put in the development application, they brought in a series of rules in Nisiko after our development application that only allowed six-story buildings. Um, so we had some conflict with um, the locals on the height of the building and we also had some conflict in the partnership group about the height of the building. Some of the one of the partners um, wanted to lower the building, and one wanted to continue with the design that we we had. Um, we thought we'd be able to get finance through the builders in Japan, um, which, if you're a big organisation, you often can. Um, but the truth is that um, that was. Uh, going to require a lot more capital than we'd initially thought because we were quite small developers and that was our first development. So it was a little bit of a, um, uh, you know, we are learning, you know, the, the hard way, I guess. Um, and Don came along at the right time in 2006 after we'd got our approvals through um, and made an offer to the three partners that we all accepted um, and – you know, that was a way for us to move on. And one of the, the the majority partner in that development went on to establish a very successful developing development company in Japan, a guy called Jonathan Martin, who's got a company called Nisade. Um, and Nisade right now um, are just 
finalizing a big 100-unit development in an emerging resort close to Nisiko called Rizutsu. Um, and that's one of many buildings that Nisade have gone on to do. So, um, you know, those guys were the right guys um, to do a development with. It just wasn't the right timing for our partnership. My other partner was Pete Murphy, who runs a company called Ski Japan. Um, and he's, you know, Ski Japan continues to be a very big player in the, um, in the ski business in Japan. After that development, I realized that my strong suit wasn't really in um, developing and it was more in the agency side of um, things. So we started a company in Pete Murphy and myself in 2006 called Naseko Property. Um, and that um, Naseko Property, you know, con- is, continues to be a success to this day. I sold out of that my share in that company in 2011. Um, and the guy who took over it, a guy called Grant Mitchell, has has, has taken the second property from strength to strength. So, um, you know, it's uh, I'm now started a new company called Peak Property. Um, I left the market for a couple of years and then returned to the market. Um, and I just have a uh, a Japanese partner, a guy called Kichi Nakagawa. And Kichi and myself just run our company, Peak Property, ourselves. Um, We enjoy doing less transactions, but, um, you know, giving a more personalized service and having higher margins rather than having an office and staff. Um, And we also have a a business up there called Naseko Listings, which is a consolidated listing website, um, which is a little bit like um, realestate.com. So we consolidate all the small agents together um and we and that um gives those smaller agents a voice in the in the nisico market and so that's selling property is that what that company in yeah did we're selling yeah primarily at the moment peak sells property um as a side note to selling property through peak you know we we've done some um investment syndicates where we've i put some syndicates together to invest in property in the past on a small scale and recently on a larger scale. So I've got eight investors together to purchase land in Rizutsu, a six hectare site in Rizutsu. Um, and I've also purchased another six hectare site in um, a town called Kuchan, which is adjacent to Nisiko. It's about 10 minute drive from Nisiko. Um, and I'll be you know, doing a subdivision there on my own in the next three to four years, um, you know, I'm just I'm just jumping through all the hoops that uh, um, that, in, that goes with doing a subdivision in Japan at the moment. So that's a land subdivision, and you just plan on selling off the blocks. That's correct. Yeah. So that's that's a six hectare site. So um, I purchased that site two years ago, and I'm just you know dealing with um, my neighbours at the moment. You know, there's some. We've, we've just finished the survey and there's some land overlap. So I own some farmer's land and I've got to um, – I'm just negotiating with the farmer on a land swap at the moment. So we've just – you know, that obviously takes a lot of time. So we're just going through that motion at the moment, which is probably a good thing, you know, considering the state of the market at the moment. Yeah. Can you give us a sense of the size of blocks that you'll cut them down to? Um. The size of the blocks will be somewhere between 350 to 660 square meters. Some of the blocks may be a little bit bigger than that. 
Um, there'll be quite a, a lot of green space in, in the subdivision as well. Um, and we'll be looking at the local market and the middle market. Most development in Japan is really aimed at um, the high end of the market. So the high, you know, Nisiko, or I should say Nisiko, you know, most development in Nisiko is um, really aimed at the high end of the market. And while we're talking about, you know, Nisiko, we probably should talk about a little bit about the overview of Nisiko because I'm sure there's some people listening to this podcast who've got no idea what, you know, we're talking about when we talk about Nisiko. <laughs> yeah, uh, no doubt. So I might give you a little bit of an overview of Nisiko. So Nisiko is um, located in the, in the north of Japan on the North Island of Hokkaido. Um, so I like to call it, it's a little bit like the Tasmania of Japan. Um, it's quite undeveloped. Is that, is that meant to be a compliment or I'll leave that to our listeners to decide? <laughs> yeah, no, it, it is definitely a compliment. Um, I don't, it's got none of the, you know, I think that jokes about Tasmania aside, um, it's a beautiful, natural, cold place. Um, and it's got all the best of Japanese culture, the great food, the lovely people. Um, but it's a little less developed than the rest of Japan. So there's a real, when you go up there, there's a, there's a lot of farming community. There's a lot of national park. There's a lot of space. So it's not as tight. It's not as highly, you know, densely populated as, as Honshu, the main island of Japan. Um, but it's, and if you're a skier or a snowboarder, it's also a little bit colder than the rest of Japan and it gets um, a lot of snow. So it snows 13 to 14 metres a year, um, which makes it uh, one of the snowiest places on the planet. And the reason it gets so much snow is there's a thing up there called ocean effect snow. So what you've got is the, you know, adjacent to Japan, you've got the greatest landmass in the world, that Asia-Russia landmass. And in winter, that's very, very cold. And that dry air... Um, travels or that very dry cold air travels from west to east and the first thing that dry cold air does you know as it comes off asia is it hits the sea of japan which is a very warm body of water and that warm body of water all of a sudden it, you know all it picks up all that moisture next thing it hits is is japan and japan's mountains by world standards are not particularly high but um anisiko's only at the top of Nisiko Mountain is only 1,300 metres above sea level, which as a ski resort is, is very low. But that, um, you know, very cold, very dry air hits that, um, those mountains around Nisiko and it just drops snow. Um, and it's that if you're a skier or a snowboarder, that um, in, the, in December, January, February, we get about five metres of, of snow per month. Um, and if you're a skier and a snowboarder, that's, you know, heaven on a stick. It just snows continually. It's not unusual for it to snow two or three weeks nonstop. Um, and that means you just get, you know, that beautiful, dry, deep, fluffy snow that you'll see on, um, you know, on social media or through winter. Um, and what it, can you just give us a sense of what it's like developing in Japan? I mean, my understanding was that they've been in the economic doldrums for decades or more so does that influence property prices 
Mexico um, and the area around it was famous um, in the 90s and in the 2000s for having the worst performing property market in all of Japan because it was essentially a rural area. Um, there was a little uh, – um, and it's quite a remote area. Um, it's about 100 kilometers from the nearest international airport. Um, but um, – it was the land prices were very, very depressed when we turned up. Um, and so you could buy a block of land in the, at the bottom of a ski hill um, for $30,000 like I did back in 2004. Um, and then, you know, developing by that stage, by about 2000, there'd been Westerners increasingly coming into to Nisiko and they'd struggle to find Western-style accommodation. So... Developing in Japan um, was a little bit tricky because of the language barrier, but there was a couple of, you know, Western guys who'd been building in Japan for, you know, 15 or 20 years and they realized the opportunity and they came up to Japan and started offering property management services so or project management services uh, more accurately. So what you could do is um, you could go in there, talk to one of the Western guys, they would go through the approval process for you. They wouldn't actually build the house, but they would project manage the house for you with some Japanese builders. Um, the Japanese building process is, is really, from a Western perspective, is really good. It's really straightforward. Um, with the building regulations that they have in Japan, as long as you comply with the building regulations, you'll get a building permit without any issue. Um, and the architects know that. And the architects often um, work as project managers as well. Um, so if you have purchased a block of land in Japan, um, and Japan has a system of title that's very similar to Australia, where they have a Torrens title system. Um, and in some respects, it's actually even more simple than purchasing land um, in Australia because the, the property contracts are largely pro formas. So you just complete the pro forma. There's a local um, solicitor or, or scrivener, as they call them in Japan, who will arrange the conveyance for you. So you purchase your block of land. You go and see a local project manager. He prepares a design for you. He then takes that um, design to the local authorities. They approve it. You then um, He then project manages the builder. The builder will give you a, a set price um, and he'll give you a, a finish date. And he will, they will, unless you have any modifications after that, they will always build it on time and they will always build it exactly precisely to your specifications. So... Um, it's actually, in many respects, it's far simpler um, to develop in Japan than it is to develop in, in a Western country. God, so many questions there. Uh, so just going back to getting a planning permit. So you said if, you're, if you tick all the boxes with regards to whatever the code is, you get your permit. What about yes. if you don't? Is there any variability? or? No, there is not. Japan is, there are no shades of grey. You know, and they'll, you know, you if you go into the planning department and they've got a big smile on their face, do you comply? Yes, we comply. Tick. Goodbye. Thank you. You know, there's no shades of grey. And and is that a very long process? 
it doesn't know. It doesn't have to be a long process as long as, and that's the beauty of planning in Japan. Sometimes the planning rules are a little bit silly and a little bit archaic, um, but there are no shades of grey. And then, what um, about, and sorry to interrupt. Then what about what about paying or the the title in terms of? Do you have to establish some kind of entity in the, in Japan, or do you buy in your own name? What's the sort of legal side on that no, side? You can you can um, buying a property in Japan um, is really straightforward. There's no foreign investment review board. Um, there is. You can purchase in a company name. You can purchase in your own name. The only thing they they don't like you purchasing in a trust's name, but um, you can purchase um, a property in a company name that's associated with a trust. So it's buying a property in Japan is not really all that complicated. And there are um, Western English-speaking consultants and Western consultants who can guide you through the process. And then earlier you mentioned about finance. What's fu- what's funding like? Getting development funding in Japan. Um, development funding is really tough. Um, interestingly, back in two thousand eight, two thousand and nine, you could get some funding from the Commonwealth Bank, um, and a lot of the early investors in Nisiko, who were mostly Australian, managed to get finance, um, get a mortgage on their properties in Japan with the Commonwealth Bank. They offered 300 mortgages, 2008, 2009, and then they closed that book um, and have never re-offered any mortgages. If you are married to um, a Japanese national, it is possible for you to get some financing um, or it's easier for you to get financing. But if you're a foreigner um, and you're not married to a Japanese national, it is very, very difficult to get finance, almost almost impossible to get financing in Japan. So the way that most people have got financing um, to, to build in Japan is by um, going and seeing their local bank in whatever um, domicile that might be. If you're in Australia, obviously it's talking to your local bank and getting a loan secured against your Australian property um, so that's the way that most people have developed in Japan. So basically, um, but you it's, it, fully fund it. You do it. It's it's very much a um, it's very much a cash um, development scenario. Okay, and the the land that you sell, who's generally your buyers for that? Are those at locals, or is there a big international market? For the first. Um, when I first purchased my, my first block in 2004, I bought it through a Japanese agent and he didn't speak any English. And we, we drove around and um, he had a little book and he pointed to a couple of blocks um, and um, he was the only agent in town. And so I sort of chose a block <laughs> really in, in, in half an hour and, um, and then – over and we agreed on a price and you know i went to play golf but it was a, it was a you know i realized pretty quickly and uh that it, there was an opportunity there to you know open an agency to guide people through um the sales process because numbers in japan by that stage had, had really started to rise so um there's now a dozen foreign owned and or foreign run 
um, agencies in the Nisikawa area and, in, and indeed now throughout Japan. So if you're, um, if you want to invest in Japan or in Nisikawa or one of the other ski areas in Japan, um, there's mostly a, a Western or an English speaking agent who can guide you through the process. And then what's the market transparency like in terms of understanding values and tr- uh, transactions that are happening wherever you're looking? That's a great question, um, Justin. The, the tricky thing about investing in Japan in real estate in, um, is the market is opaque. So there's no publication of prices that are paid um, in a particular area. There's no... Um, way that you can go into one of the – there's no way that you can investigate what your neighbour purchased your property for. you really only got the word um, of um, the local agent and, you know, people in the market. So it's very – you really need to research the market before you go into the market. Um, and there are – it does create um, a little bit of an advantage for those who, you know, really understand the market and really know the market. And Ruskin, what about bill costs in Japan? Is it cheap, expensive? Bill costs in um, in Nisiko in Japan um, are a little more expensive than building in somewhere like Indonesia or Australia um, or the rest of Asia. Um, you've got to build for for winter and for earthquakes, um, and they've got a very structured building industry. So you obviously got to insulate the building and create a building that that can withstand 15 metres of snow a year. Um, so you're looking at about $3,000 per square metre to build a, um, a suburban-style house, which you know, which is what most people do when they go up to Nisiko. Um, and build costs are driven a little bit by um, the shortage of skilled labour, um, which has come about with the... Tokyo 2020 Olympics has been a lot that sucked up a lot of labor and also the reconstruction work associated with the 2011 um, earthquake. Um, so that has led to a little bit of a shortage of builders in, in Japan or in, in Hokkaido. Um, I wanted to so go, build costs yeah. are a little higher. Okay. And I wanted to just to go back to, the, to finish off the economic discussions because so, generally speaking, Japan has been economically economically depressed for a couple of decades now but what you're saying is there's different parts of the country perform differently particularly in relation to the property market yeah well the um the nisiko area and the area around ski the major ski resorts um and this people have been developing in nisiko now for about 20 years um, in some of the other ski resorts on Honshu, they're just starting to develop now. So Nisiko is, a, is like a little island in Japan. Um, property prices have grown, you know, very strongly um, in, in that area over the last 15 years. Um, but it's very much driven by foreign investment rather than by local investment. So... 99% of the buyers that I deal with um, are foreigners, mostly from Asia now um, and to a lesser degree Australia. In the first, um, the first five years I was in the, in the real estate business up there, most of our buyers were Australian. Um, but they 
gave way in 2008-2009 to uh, Asian investors. So a lot of Chinese investors, a lot of Chinese visitors, a lot of Hong Kong, um, a lot of Singapore, uh, Philippines, Thailand, Indonesia, you know, the wealthy people from those Asian countries um, are really driving the Nisikoi market. You've got to remember that um, that Sapporo, which is the gateway to Nisikoi, is only two hours flight from Beijing um, and only five hours from Hong Kong. So it's, um, it's really accessible to the Chinese market. And what's it like living? Did you have, would you say you live there? What, what's it like living there as a foreigner, and how are you viewed by the locals? Um, I lived in Nisiko between two thousand and six to two thousand and eleven, and it's a great place to live. Um, you know, it's a cliche that we all use in ski resorts, but we say come for the winter, stay for the summer. Um, so the winters are always great um, if you're a keen skier and snowboarder. Um, but the summer is is equally as good. Um, there's a lot less people around. Um, it's a very green and lush area. A lot of the ski areas that you see in Europe um, and in Australia are almost desert-like in the summer. Um, but in, in Japan, it's very green and very lush. It still rains a lot. There's great golf courses up there. We're only 45 minutes drive to the beach. So there's... What's also happening in, in Nisiko over the last 10 or 15 years is a lot of the foreigners who've come um, to Nisiko to drive the, the tourism market have stayed there, um, have houses there. Um, in summer, it's a great place to visit. It really, Nisiko is really only a Western driven economy for three months of the year, and that's December, January, February. For the rest of the, the year, it's very much, it returns, reverts very much to being a Japanese town. Um, and it quietens down quite substantially. And, you know, you really return to nature. So it's a very, it's, it's a, there's a real lifestyle to living there. And that's a, a very attractive thing. So what we're seeing now is, is Nisiko is, is becoming a real lifestyle capital. Um, you can in summer, it's a great place to ride your mountain bike. You can take your mountain bike on the lifts now. It's a great place to ride your road bike. It's a great place to train. The beach is only 45 minutes away. So there's a real lifestyle associated with Nisiko and that's really popular with Asian guests now. So we get a lot of Asian guests coming up in summer to go to central Hokkaido in Furano in particular. Um, so it, it is, it's a real lifestyle destination. There's a lot of people moving to Nisiko for the lifestyle. Um, and obviously you can, because you can, more and more people are working remotely. You know, there's a lot of people who, who live and work in, in Nisiko remotely now, um, really just for the lifestyle. Um, and what's the, what's the view, what's the Japanese view of other people coming in and or people living there? <laughs> must be some tension at times. In winter, there's certainly some tension now. Um, um, Nisiko, when I first came to Nisiko in 1998, there were 300 foreign visitors for the season. Um, but now in the winter period, in December, January, February, um, Nisiko gets... Um, 
about 200,000 foreign visitors in a very short period of time. Um, so the Japanese people, you know, real, there's a real emphasis on, you know, when you're in Japan, act like a Japanese person, be respectful. Um, and occasionally the Westerners will upset that apple cart, but by and large, um, Japan are very good with tourists. Um, and the tourist economy is really um, given the J Japanese economy a shot in the arm. Um, over the, you know, Japanese tourist numbers now are around 30 million a year, uh, per year. When I first came to Japan in 1998, there were only 4 million overseas guests to Japan. So tourism in Japan has really exploded in the last, particularly in the last five to 10 years, it's become a lot more accessible, largely because of the internet. And the internet is really good in Japan and it's really accessible. There's things like Google Translate. It's a lot easier with, with a mobile phone in your hand to get around in Japan. And people have realized that, that Japan is not as expensive um, as the rest of the, you know, as people have made out in the past. The yen's not as strong as it, it used to be. So, um, and the, it, it's a great place if you're a tourist it's a great place to travel um, and that tourism infrastructure is so good you've got the Shinkansen the bullet train that you know runs throughout Japan so it's easy to get around and one of the things that's driving uh, development in the Nisikawa area era era area is um, a Shinkansen station which is being built in um in kuchan which is that small town which is 10 minutes drive from nisiko so that will not um, be completed for another 10 years so it's opening opening in 2030 but that's really going to drive tourism to the nisiko area um, and that so that means you can um be it'll take about four hours from tokyo to nisiko on the bullet train um and it'll also make other areas of Hokkaido much more accessible. Um, that's that's one of the things that's really driven um, the real estate market in that area. And I can't not ask you a question about food in Japan. What's, <laughs> what's your favorite food that you like to eat over there? Oh, oh God. I think that probably my personal favorite is soup curry, um, which is a Japanese curry that in winter is just perfect. It's just that beautiful um, blend of, you know, lovely Japanese vegetables, a mild curry often with a little bit of coconut in it um, and with some rice on the side that you add to the curry. So it's just, uh, yeah, that's, that's, I think that's going to be the next big Japanese food. It's when it's done well, it's, it's delicious, particularly in winter. So it's mangoes in the summer and then Japanese curry in the winter. It is, yeah. I mean, of course, one of the big, you know, ever, Japan is, if you're a foodie, you know, Japan's a, a perfect destination because every little restaurant takes great pride in the food that they produce. So it's very rare to get a bad meal in Japan. And it's not just Japan that you've got property interests in. I think you've got other things that you're doing back in Australia. I do do a little bit of commercial real estate um, in Japan, uh, no, Japan in Australia, um, and I have invested in Indonesia as well um, in Lombok, 
with some friends of mine who I met in Nisiko who've got a great development uh, model in in Lombok called uh, in an area um, called Salong um, Selo, um, which is on the the south coast of Lombok. Beautiful area, great beaches, beautiful sand, good waves as well. Um, so I have invested in Indonesia as well. So you're chasing the just chasing the good times, basically, whether it's up in the mountains or down by the beach. I think. Um, you know, I saw that growth that they were getting in Bali and, you know, I didn't ever, I always, uh, you know, I first went to Bali in the 80s as a surfer and, you know, I loved it from the moment that I got there and I still love going to Indonesia um, and I go there a couple of times a year if I can um, and I do think Indonesia's got tremendous potential. Um and I missed the boat in Bali, so I was determined not to miss it in Lombok. And Lombok's certainly um, had its ups and downs, but um, I took my wife to Salong Balanik a couple of years ago because I wanted her perspective on it um, as a non-surfer, and she loved it. So I do, you know, I do, um, I do think Lombok's got some potential. Yeah, and you've got, what did you say? You had some commercial properties somewhere in South Wales. I do. Um, yeah, on the Central Coast. I grew up on the Central Coast and um, I own and manage some properties on the Central Coast. Um, I used to be quite heavily involved in those properties, but I found a great property manager. Um, so I've stepped away from those properties, but those properties um, have been a good investment. Um, at the time that I took them over, um, when I left Japan, I'd, I'd um, sold some some properties in Japan, and I wanted to take a step back from Japan. Um, so I took over those properties in 2011, 2012, and they weren't very well managed, um, and there was quite a few vacancies in there. So um, I had to go into those commercial properties, and they're retail and commercial and refurbish some of those properties. I had to get rid of some of the tenants and I had to put a new uh, property management and um, those properties are now doing very, very well. And that's also driven by demographics. The Central Coast in the last 10 years um, has become a lot, you know, that real estate market has really grown. Um, it's People have realised it's really close to Sydney. It's really accessible and and the residential property market on the Central Coast and is really is really growing. So those properties have done well on the back of that, um, you know, increasing population on the Central Coast. And when you look back over however long you've been involved in property, what do you think you've learned about yourself along the way? Um, I've realised that there are some things that I'm very good at. <laughs> probably good at sales um, there's other things that I'm not so good at I'm um, I'm a bit of a plotter when it comes to development um, and I'm a bit of a plotter when it comes to management um, I don't have the patience for management and I've also realized that management is you know it's a, in the real estate business it's a really unloved skill and there are some people who are very very good at it who are very detail oriented um, and let you know stand back and let those guys manage. And if you've got a good manager, you know, hang on to them um, and encourage them and give them a good incentive to manage your prop your properties properly. 
And why do you think you're good at sales? Um, I've, I've, before I started in real estate, I had a background in sales, in, in, in commercial sales and in commercial leasing, and I just enjoyed it. I enjoy talking to people. I enjoy the deal. Um, and I was probably a little slow to get into property. I, you know, when I was in my late 20s, early 30s, I didn't want to be tied down too much. And I, so I didn't actually purchase my first property until I was about 36. Um, I invested in the share market. I liked the share market because it was, you know, quick in and quick out. Um, but it was, you know, so yes, I was, I was pretty slow to get into, pro- into property. Um, but yeah, I, I do like this. I do like the, the deal, you know, I feel, uh, I really enjoy, you know, f- you know, seeing, uh, seeing my clients do well. And I recently, I sold a property to a client um, in 2010 and I just contacted him recently and he bought a property from me in Rizutsu in 2010 and I think he paid about 250000 Australian dollars for that property and he just, I, he, I didn't sell the property but he sold it through um, Naseko property and I, I rang him up and I just said, look, can I ask you what you, you know, sold the property for. Um, and part of the reason I do that is to, you know, really keep my finger on the pulse in Japan because as I explained to you, you know, it is an opaque market. And he was kind enough to tell me what he sold that property for and he sold that property for about $2.5 million. So, you know, that was an outstanding investment for a client and that really, you know, made my day. I'm just happy to see my clients do well. Awesome. We all love to have those kind of deals coming across our desk, wouldn't we? <laughs> <laughs> and if you have, if you lost everything and had to start it all over again, what, what, do you, what would you focus on? Um, good question. I think um, I would I would continue to focus on Japanese property. I still think that there's um, a long way to go for, in Japanese property. Um, the opportunities, there's still great opportunities around the ski resort area, around the Nisiko area. That's an area that I really know well. You know, I've been um, going there for 22 years. I've been, you know, buying property. So even though, you know, I've talked about what I do in Lombok to a small, in a small way and also what I do in, in Australia, um, you know, I think if I was a young property developer and I had no capital, I would really research the hell out of Nisiko, you know, because I think I still see bargains there every day. Um, so that is, and you know, that's the area that I would focus on. Um, I, you know, I think I've listened to your podcast and I've listened to what it, some of your developers do, um, but I still think that um, you know the, the the capital growth that's available in Japan in the next five to 10 years, I think is going to be phenomenal. It has been phenomenal in the last 15 years. And I, um, when I invest now in Japan, I, you know, I don't invest for return. I really just invest for capital growth and, and that, and I think Japan's got, you know, real capital growth potential. And what about the best piece of advice you've ever been given? Um, I think the best piece of advice I've ever been given was by my father. And he said, uh, he used to tell me that, um, that no one ever got rich as an employee. Um, 
And I've always, that's always been in the back of my mind. And even though I didn't really start my first business until I was in my late 30s, um, it wasn't until, you know, I did my first deal that, you know, and I got a big commission check that I realized that, um, <laughs> that being an employee wasn't for me. Um, and I think that's, I've really, you know, I'm 54 now and I see a lot of my friends who've had careers um, and who are now in their 50s. And I'm increasingly seeing that there's, if you're in your 50s now, there's, you know, in a lot of industries um, and a lot of businesses, there's really no place for people in their 50s. You know, people don't want to employ people in their 50s. They don't want to give them a career path. Um, so, you know, I'm very glad that, you know, when I was in my thirties, I made that decision, you know, not to be an employee. And I do think that, um, I'm really seeing this new generation come through who seem to be very entrepreneurial and seem to be very skeptical about, um, corporate life is, you know, I think is, you know, one of the great things about the current generation, you know, we all like to write off. Um, you know, those kids are in their 20s and 30s, but I really love seeing those young entrepreneurs who are, you know, doing it for themselves and doing really well. Yeah, and the other thing that's become apparent with all the virus, COVID-19 stuff that's happening across the world is that businesses can have the rug pulled out from under them and their employees get caught along with it. Definitely, yeah, you know, and it's, it's been pretty tough in the real estate business in, you know, in, in Japan um, and also in Australia. Um, and I do feel, and I'm sure that there's some stories to come out of that, um, you know, but um, I think probably there's also some great opportunities because the, you know, the, the real estate market in Australia in, in a lot of areas has been very frothy. And I, you know, when I look at it, um, over the last 10 or 11 years, you know, I, so I really scratch my head um, because it seems to me that rents have, you know, been going down um, and prices have been going up and that just seems like an elastic band that's ready to snap to me. Obviously, interest rates have continued to be low, but if there's any change in interest rates, um, you know, that, that's all going to blow up. But um, I'll be very interested to see what happens in, in the next five years. Yeah, well, I don't think interest rates are going anywhere particularly quickly uh, in the next three to five years. I don't think the federal government can afford to let them creep up too quickly with the state that a lot of people are in. Definitely not, um, Justin. So, yeah, look, I'm, I'm, uh, thanks very much for speaking with me today. And, um, you know, if anyone wants to get in touch with me, then, you know, I'm, I'm easy to find. <laughs> There's not too many Ruskin McLennans in this world. No, it's uh, it's definitely got a bit of a rock star ring to it. <laughs> <laughs> One last question. What's your top tip for developers out there that might be looking to take their business to the next level? Um, I would say, you know, after my experience of development is, um, is be patient and take your time, you know, and, I, um, and really understand the market that you are you know you're going to be selling into um and i've what i often see in japan when 
is is developers who build stuff without talking to the local agents, um, and they don't they get their pricing wrong, and they get, um, I guess they make a whole lot of mistakes that we've seen time and time again that really diminishes their value. So I would really, you know, talk to you, make sure that you understand that market to the nth degree. Um, and one of the things that we've done in Japan is in the past is we've bought, um, you know, failed developers' stock and and uh, repurposed it and sold it well. You know, so it's it is an opportunity. You know, be, know your market. Very good. Well, if people want to find out more about you or about the property business that you run in Japan, where can they go looking? Um, they can find me on Peak Niseko. So if you just Google Peak Niseko, you'll find me. Um, We've got. You'll see my website comes up there, and all my details will be there. So, if you um, already own property in Japan um, and you need a little bit of advice, um, or you're looking to buy, then you know, please get in touch with me. And Niseko, how do you spell that? Niseko is N-I-S-E-K-O. Okay. Um, so it's just Peak Niseko. If you put it in, if you put Peak Niseko into Google. You'll see me. It's um, you know, it's quite a quite a small market up there. Um, and uh, yeah, I can I can point if I can't help you, I can certainly point you in the right direction. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to our ski trip over to Niseko Ruskin, where you teach me how to ski on soft powder. Justin, I look forward to uh, you know shouting you a soup curry and taking you for a couple of runs. We've certainly over the last 22 years we've you know introduced a lot of people to that area and now my kids are um, are very keen skiers as well and they love their uh, their winters in Nisiko so yeah come up and have a ski with us sometime I look forward to it well Ruskin it's been so awesome talking to you it's a definitely a unique story one that we haven't had before on the podcast so it's been great to talk to you about it and I really appreciate your time and insights you're welcome nice to talk to you too see you later Great. Bye-bye. Okay, there you go. What an interesting journey that Ruskin has been on. I really enjoyed speaking with him about his experiences in Japan and what he has learned along the way. Here's a couple of things I took away from the conversation. One, you don't need to develop property in your local area. Okay, so I'm sure you understand that you don't need to develop property in your local neighbourhood. But I'm guessing the prospect of developing property in another country has probably not been at the top of your list. But it goes to show that property development opportunities can exist anywhere, including in foreign markets. So, maybe it's not that scary a thought of doing a project in another state, or even another part of the city that you live. Two, understand your capability and risk appetite. As Ruskin found out, it was all well and good to get a permit to build a ski resort, but they didn't have the financial means or skill to physically develop the property. So he was wise enough to recognise that and bring in somebody who could take over the project. And from then on, he realised he was better suited to land subdivision and sales. This is a good reminder to be aware of what you can handle and are prepared to take on. So understand your limits and what areas of the development process you are prepared to push through. Alright, I trust you enjoyed that conversation with Ruskin. If you did, then you might want to go back and take a listen to the episodes featuring past guest Don O'Rourke who Ruskin mentioned was the guy who came in and took over the ski resort development. Don has been on the show a few times and he's well worth the time to listen to his advice and wisdom. 
You can go back to episodes 52 and 53 and hear Don share his tips on how he built a billion dollar developing company. Here is a taste of what you can expect with Don talking about his philosophy on pulling deals together. Nothing is really complex. I mean, people make things out to be complex, but the the principles that drive transactions are almost always very simple. So one of the things we did on that transaction, we focused on the simple pieces of commerce um, and we could see a way home by doing that. I assure you it is worth going back and listening to Don talking about property developing. All right, remember to email me if you are interested in learning how to develop property, justin at propertydeveloperpodcast.com and I can send you some further info. And you can catch my project update videos on Facebook and Insta at Property Developer Podcast, plus lots of other news, views and fun things. And as always, you can post a comment on iTunes if you're enjoying the show and all the past episodes can be found at www.propertydeveloperpodcast.com. So, until next time. You've been listening to the Property Developer Podcast. Tune in next time for more tips, ideas and inspiration to take your developing to the next level. For more developing love, make sure to visit propertydeveloperpodcast.com.